Here we go. Welcome back. Self-care part two, mental health round one. Welcome to the Inspiro podcast, a podcast exploring personal growth, leadership, strategy, communication, and fulfillment. We are your hosts, Jason Luchtefeld and Bill Woodburn. I'm here as a dentist transitioning into a career to help facilitate individuals and their organizations towards a more fulfilling future. Hi there, I'm Bill Woodburn, and I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist in Austin, Texas. I'm fascinated by the way people come together to solve problems whether that's couples or families, dental practices or organizations. We're going to be exploring a lot of topics and for us to be able to be free to do that, I have to let you know that this is not intended to be dental advice or counseling advice. Let's widen the whole thing out. There's there's an emotional aspect to life and a cognitive aspect to life. Great. And neither one of those is necessarily superior. They're supposed to be a team. You know, and each one in balance adding something. If you were totally, utterly rational like Mr. Spock on Star Trek, my sense is that you'd have a very dull and boring life. A whole bunch of the meaning of life wouldn't be there. On the other hand, you know, the classic mental health issue is usually defined as Emotions out of control, not mediated by any particular sort of effective cognitive process at all. So what that hints is that, no, these are both partners mm-hmm. that when they are in balance and the right tool is being used for the right job, human beings are terrific. When either one of them is out of balance and takes over, particularly if it takes over completely, you tend to think something's wrong with that person. Okay, so I'm, I'm glad you said that. And I think reiterating the, the idea of these areas overlapping is important. And the other areas fall into play here as well with what we're calling mental and emotional. The physical affects it and vice versa. Uh, nutrition affects it, vice mm-hmm. versa. And that it... it has a role in our professional lives and it has a role in our spiritual spiritual lives, spiritual understanding. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think that the- I want to make the, the distinction or the announcement or whatever, the caution that we are artificially dividing these things up. That's right. When I think that came up uh, and we could do that again, we, we stated a number of different ways that other people have divided these things. It could be four areas. It could be 12 areas. Mm -hmm. And we just arbitrarily picked five because that's what we agreed upon after discussing it a bit, but you're absolutely right. It's totally arbitrary. There is no uh, science behind how we're separating it. It just felt good to us when we were talking about how to go through a series on self-care topics. And often, you know, we, we move into the classic debate of brain versus mind. 
Oh, which, interesting. Which okay. used to be the big psychological debate. And if you read William James, the guys in the early 19th, uh, 20th century, late 20, 19th, early 20th century, you know, there is a lot of, of writing about consciousness and how can we study consciousness because we have to be conscious to study our own consciousness and the whole introspective school, uh, which was really about mind. Uh, Sigmund Freud, classic stuff about mind. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, yes, well, he had the ego, id, and superego. Yeah, but he knew those were metaphors for a this this vague thing, the mind. He wasn't talking about the brain. There's there's no actual little id circuit in your brain. Um, about the past 20 years, especially since we've come up with the uh, fMRI, so we can actually see the brain functioning basically what that means is we can see where blood flow goes into the brain we're assuming that's what's working in the brain when it gets blood flow i think that's a pretty reasonable assumption but still that's that's an assumption um, and all of a sudden we're having to put brain and mind together in ways we didn't used to have to because we didn't we didn't notice that when people lie their blood flow goes differently in their brain. When people uh, are talking about a traumatic incident in their lives, the blood flow is different when they're not. It's like, oh, no, yeah, this is mind and brain inhabit the same space. We're just linguistically separating things because we used to have this experience that our brain was the hardware and the mind was the software that's gotten a lot fuzzier in the last 20 years fuzzier meaning what a lot more overlap okay and i'm going to say that's a good thing that's that's a good thing yeah i think they got too far apart i I think it you know both of those are, are reasonable it's reasonable to talk about mind it's reasonable to talk about brain but they are tethered so solidly together it gets a little silly when we try to pretend they're two different things that live in two different places and, and you know, function differently and are not affected by each other. No, of course. We're really talking about two ways to look at the same stuff. The only difference the last 20 years is we can look inside the black box in ways we never were able to before. Yeah. It's not as black a box in there as it used to be. So when we're talking about cognitive side of it as we are going to be trying to spend more time on today we're talking about things that are more prefrontal cortex related not saying other areas aren't involved as you just uh, expressed but it's more about those executive functions it's paying the bills on time and keeping your appointments and our ability to read a book and interpret what it says that kind of stuff Compared to the emotional side, which is maybe more amygdala, hippocampus. And again, with that said, it those two things talk to each other all the time and are related to each other. It's more about the tendency towards one or the other How is how I'm separating those. Please correct that if I'm wrong. Oh, no, I, th- I think that's a, that's a reasonable... Artificial separation for okay. us. So we're not having to talk about everything all at once. Right. I will add, though, that when, from my standpoint, when we're talking about the brain or we're talking about cognitive, I'm also interested in the idea that 
we construct our reality with the way we interpret the, the signals that are in our brain. It's like the brain organizes this whole collection of signals coming in, visual, auditory, olfactory, tactile. But we have this thing called the mind that I think we can say organizes is it into some sort of meaningful whole that constructs a reality. And so cognitively, we also have a narrative that is going on. Mm-hmm. And we have an inner dialogue that's going on. And again, that's that's really pretty cognitive. It's it's it produces feelings, but it's not a feeling, it's an assessment of the situation. It's an interpretation of the situation. We are great interpreters as human beings. Mm-hmm. We don't just go through life getting a stimulus and then having a response. There's an in-between place where we go back into our history, where we go back into our learning, where we go back into our culture and all sorts of places to say, what does that stimulus mean? What is the appropriate response? Animals don't do appropriate response. They just have a set of responses. Right. Only human beings, as far as we know, sit around and go, what's the appropriate response? What should I be doing here? What is the correct, optimal response to that? Uh, What am I seeing? Are those two people um, fighting? Are those two people discussing? Are those two people um, uh, expressing a pain? I mean, we, we have these nuances that we put in that, that make a lot of difference. When I've given workshops, sometimes I talk, well, you know, you go to the park and you see these people and uh, they chase this guy down and they get him on the ground and it looks like they're pounding him and you think, oh, my God. And then you see a football. And your brain does this 180 and says, oh, no, that's not a fight. That's not a victim. This is a game. They're allowed to do that by the rules. They could all be friends. All of a sudden, our cognitive set is applied to what we're seeing, and it changes it radically. I think with that, one of the things that we both teach, and often one of the more difficult things for people to learn, is creating space for a response versus a reaction. And so while I agree with you that we have that ability, I think our tendency is to just react and we have to use our cognitive side to be able to say hold on a second how do i want to respond to that and so that's where again that that real meshing of um the things in our brain and the uniqueness of us as humans is that we can do that we can train ourselves in that and get better at elongating that react versus response mechanism yeah and it's a continuum and it's a you know it's a there's a there's a decision here because this uh, ability to cognitively interpret what's going on in this lovely nuanced open and flexible way is very expensive it's expensive in time it's expensive in energy there are times when it's way too slow uh And so what we do, and this is partly brain, partly mind, is we decide 
what our reality is and what appropriate responses are. And we get taught growing up and by our culture and whatever. And then we move that back in this very habitual place where we, we are just responding uh, based on previous decisions or other people's decisions they taught us or, or whatever. And everybody says, oh, well, that's terrible. No, I mean, can you imagine waking up in the morning and the first thing you have to decide is what room you're in and what you should do next? And it was like, no, I know what to do. I'm in my bedroom. You know, I roll out of bed. I, I know where my clothes are. I know I need to get, I don't have to decide to get dressed before I go outside. I mean, you know, everything is not up for grabs. There is this lovely habitual routine in there that I have been taught, you know, ever since I was five and wanted to, you know, run outside in my skivvies or something. It's like, no, no, you got to dress. So we rely on that. And that's not a bad thing. The downside, of course, is really bad for learning are being confronted with new environments that have got a lot more subtlety that we've been taught to not see cognitively. And it's all of a sudden like, oh, right now I've got a bunch of new interns. I'm getting ready to start start the new, new year. And the first thing I have to do is teach them how to look at a couple or family because there's so much they're missing not because they're stupid, they're very bright people, but they've been trained not to pick up on certain things and to focus on other things. Socially, that's appropriate. But if you're the family therapist, you've got to be looking at different things. You've got to be looking at things that most of us are taught to just let blow by that are, quote, none of our business or however you want to phrase it. It's like, no, that is your business. You, you do have to check what is the body language, what is the word choice, you know, who speaks, what is the power arrangement, all sorts of things that I have to build into their consciousness. Now, they're already seeing that stuff. But again, we're talking about this sort of consciousness of that's able to put that reality together. And they're going to have to learn that. Mm -hmm. and, and they're going to have to be able to do it fast enough that it, they can be effective in that environment. Yeah, I'm going to ditto that for the dental office and our ability to do that with each other as team members, as well as with patients and being able to cognitively, purposefully assess and interpret and address as needed things that you wouldn't in a social context. Yes. Yeah. And, and so there's real value in that. And that is that cognitive side. It's it's learning something and then being able to apply that to a real-life situation. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a simple but actually rather profound example. People forget that it, it there is a real cognitive uh, work going on if an assistant is standing by the chair, talks to patient, talk to doctor, talk to patient talk to doctors. You talk to patients differently than you talk to doctors. You have to re-gear in your head when you turn to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And then you have to flip it back the other way when you turn to the patient. It sounds simple and, and most people do it pretty automatically. But you know, that's a that's a reasonably heavy cognitive load, especially if you're if you're a newbie and and you're trying to make sure that you are respectful to the doctor and 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 kind and caring to the patient. Uh, and then another team member walks up. Oh, no, now I have to also talk to a team member. 
And all of those are slightly different cognitive sets that bring up different, quote, appropriatenesses. We can't, we, we can't just respond. It's like, oh, no, what's appropriate for the doctor? What's appropriate for the patient? What's appropriate for my team member? And, and then that's a changing thing. What's appropriate in the morning or what's appropriate with this patient or what's appropriate with this doctor if there's more than one doctor, right? I mean, everybody's a little different. So it's like, yeah, that's a serious cognitive load. We all do it and we all get accustomed to it. And we forget that there's some real work going on. Yeah. I, and I don't know why what you just <laughs> said reminded me of this, but uh, it makes me think of other cognitive items we're unaware of that might benefit us to become aware of them. And yes. one of them that I dealt with for 20 plus years is clenching. So people clenching during the day has detrimental effects, higher risk for migraine headaches or other attention type headaches, uh, <laughs> tooth effects, um, a number of things that are not the topic of conversation today. But the fact that the daytime uh, action of clenching is something that we can only control cognitively assuming that it's not coming from a medication or something like that, but it's oftentimes uh, stress-related. And that stress can be emotional stress. It can also be physical stress. It can just be stress stress. I, I have to drive to work in traffic every day, therefore I clench. It's not because you're emotionally taxed, it's because you're, you're physically irritated. And maybe yes. that you could call that emotional as well, but I'm I'm separating that out for my uh, my amateur well, psychology brain. Well, <laughs> let's take a moment and 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 trace the yeah. path of clinching, yeah. which is that there there is some sort of stimuli in the environment, the traffic, the workplace, that person you don't like at the workplace, uh, whatever. Um. And your brain and your 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 cognitive set organizes sees a pattern that says it's a threat. Also overlays that with an appropriateness of well, you should not run out of work, and you still have to be polite to the boss. So there's a, a whole set of appropriate actions. And then you live with that over time, it moves back into that habitual place in your mind where it's just a pattern that we just go through and there's a whole bunch of pressure and it starts to work its way into our body and now we're starting to clench. So there's a big cognitive component to clench. It just happens so early in the process and becoming aware of clenching helps, but becoming aware of the setup that your brain does with the environment that leads eventually to clinch mm -hmm. is another important pace. So I would call that a trigger. <clears throat> yes. So doing yes. a trigger analysis of something like that could be a really valuable tool for somebody. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's a, it's dental, but it's not exactly dental. I mean, you oh could, yeah. You can put appliances and stuff and that's good. But you might need to have someone reanalyze their surroundings like we sort of, you know, get them to erase the habitual and reanalyze it 
to see if it's related to the clenching. And most people can do that. But remember, we're such habitual creatures that it, it takes a little bit and you have to you have to work people through the, well, is there something in your world that seems threatening or angering or frustrating? In other words, are you getting a little bit of flight, flight, fight or flight going on in your world uh, and being able to spot that. But again, if it's all habitual, we, we don't see it. Right. It blends into to, the background noise. We have to shuffle our minds a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's where we come in, whether that's me as a dentist, a hygienist, an assistant, uh, all those can bring it up or you, if they're sure. seeing you and saying, man, I'm, I'm stressed out, don't know how to handle it. And I assume you also talk about physical manifestations of oh, yes. uh, things and that would come up there as well. So that's a really important piece to know. Um, I want to talk more about the narrative that we create. That's one of my favorite things. I'm very narrative-based in my approach to, to therapy, uh, but also my approach to life. We really, as humans, are, are story-making animals. We love patterns, and we love everything to have a line that it follows. And, and we will even take random things, uh, you know, and, and put faces in clouds. And, you know, because we have to have a story. The interesting thing to me is that stories are a, a, arise from a combination of things. They arise, arise from the event that's going on, but also it's combined with history. What we have seen before or done before or thought before. It's also combined with biology, what we can think, what state our brain or body is in. When we when we start combining all those things, and then we put it together with some sort of social context of what's appropriate based on who we are and who we live around and whatever, you know, now now our narrative starts up, you know, because it's got to it, it's it's got to tap all those boxes a little bit. Narr uh, our narrative doesn't spring out of nowhere. It's a it's a combination of all of those things. It's like how I and uh, think of this current event that is just happening to me. Or let's say a patient goes in and uh, they're told that they have uh, something very serious. They're going to need some very serious and expensive dentistry. Well, they've already got a narrative going on about their life. And they've already got a narrative that's going on about the dental office and the dental visit. Now, most people don't realize that the patients already got a story about you before they ever met you or got to your office. They've got a story about dentistry. They've got a story about money. And you're going to put all three of those together in some consult room and hope, and, and you've got your story. Your story could be dental health is, is terrific. And I'm very confident in this. And this is totally worth it. That may not be the story for the patient. And so you're trying to, to have two stories, two narratives come together and see, do, do I have a place for this patient in my narrative? Do they have a place for me and what I'm trying to do in their narrative? And one possibility is they don't have a place for that. Or they have a very bad place for that. Um, I have a friend of mine. He's uh, he's my age. And um, oh, I, was, I always feel bad when we get together because he's slowly losing his teeth. 
Mm. And and it's it's even painful. I mean, he's if I, I'm I'm not a dentist, but there's obviously some sort of gum situation that's going on where they loosen over time and then one day they come out and they twist and he's painful and he goes through this. And and so you know, one day I said, Mark, man, I mean, I know some really good dentists. I mean, you could do something about this. I, I don't know what, that's not my but but I know a bunch of really good guys that will know exactly what to do with this. And and we can at least stop the pain and, and maybe stop the whole process and make things better. He immediately tensed his entire body and says, I know what they're going to do when they get me in there. They're going to say, pull them out, pull them out, pull all of them out. And he turned away and he refused. He To this day, he refused to talk about it. That was a narrative. I just bumped into like this iceberg of a narrative and my ship sank very quickly. I have such a different narrative about dentistry, about possibilities and skill and, and neat new technology. Mark, no, he's got this very powerful narrative about dentistry. There's a reason he's not going to a dentist and saying, my mouth hurts. Yeah. He's not stupid. He's a very smart guy. He's not lazy. He's not poor. His narrative says, don't go there. Yeah, so we often, we all have a narrative, and that narrative is unique to us on any given topic. We very rarely interpret our own narrative. Yes. So what what is the value in, in trying to interpret a narrative? Um, can you do it yourself? Can you self-interpret your own narrative critically or effectively? Or what is a, an effective way to to take your narrative and dissect it to try to foster some sort of improvement. Right. I'm hearing, I'm hearing two different questions. Yeah. One is, you know, do we need to? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Sometimes our narrative like Mark's just does not work. It's not working for us. Hmm. Unfortunately, narratives are so all inclusive that if we're inside a narrative, it's hard to see that it's not working. Yeah. You know, it's our, our narrative is our way of explaining the the universe that we see around us, and so it'll just explain away whatever. Um, I, it would be difficult to explain to Mark that dentistry is not the way he sees it, or his narrative is prepared for it. Um, so, yeah, first, it, it's a problem. That's where again counseling comes in. I'm this I'm this other person who is caring, but also trying to listen to narrative. Not only just to point out where it's not working, but point out the possibilities in the narrative the person already has and to talk about the spots where it's difficult to have it work. Another thing that I really encourage people to do is is get into the practice of of journaling or at least writing when you think your narrative is not working. What your narrative is. What, What is the story about that in your head? You know, what there's a story going on. And by story, I mean there is a hero, there's probably a villain or a monster, and there there's a plot, and there's some sort of pot of gold or you know, dreadful swamp, or I mean they're 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 places to be avoided or, or gained. And to know what those are, sometimes you have to chart them out, draw it out, write it out, uh be able to put it down and then then look back at it 
from a slightly different point of view. I think also one of the most powerful things, both both for good and ill, is really terrific um, novels, really terrific movies, really terrific plays. Uh, there is something incredible about seeing uh, some piece of your life being acted out before you. You know, all all of a sudden, you you know, you're some guy my age, and you go to see King Lear. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is about aging and giving up your career. And who do you pass it on to? And what does your life become when you don't have that rock of this thing that you used to do well, but you want to give it up? And how do you keep from just going mad like King Lear, you know, struggles with part? I'm just like, oh no, that's that's my life. And if, if I was 20. I, I just like, okay, yeah, this is about this old guy. Not a problem. But man, at my age, that, that's impactful. Hmm. Um, often movies. Somebody will see a movie and they, they will just see some character that is so like them or some situation. And the thing it does is it allows us to be a little objective about our story. Okay. And who, what we see there and we realize it applies to us. And that can be, that'd be a big shakeup, which sometimes is very necessary now movies aren't and stories are not always great because sometimes it can shape our narrative in ways that are destructive too so i don't want to i, I don't want to be too overly positive about it. it has to be careful but if if there's a hero that you have had in a book or movie it's worth spending some time just saying why why is this person my hero why do i identify with them so much um I, I got through most of my adolescence reading the Hornblower novels. And here is this, this uh, uh, captain, this royal naval officer in the Napoleonic War. And you would think, well, what does that have to do with some kid growing up in the 60s? And it's like, but yes, he's constantly having to make decisions. He's constantly having to, to ask, what is this situation? What is the best thing to do? Uh, and there are consequences to his actions. And he's constantly trying to assess. And he's also battling with this idea of, I don't have enough information and I don't exactly know what the right thing is, but I'm going to have to make a decision anyway um, because the French frigate is on my port side and I have to figure out what to do with it. Um, and that's exactly what I needed when I was an adolescent. You know, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm having to make decisions anyway. And here's this guy doing the same thing. And Hornblower and I, Horatio Hornblower and I sort of went through life for a few years together. He helped me see my narrative uh, and and also helped me reshape it sometimes by watching what he did or reading about what he did. So absolutely important to, to have that. I've been taking notes as you were talking because there's so much there that is uh, exciting to talk about. So one, we don't need to analyze it right now, but for me growing up, it was the Incredible Hulk. So what does that say about what what I was uh, going through or am still going through? Because that's still um, what I reference a lot or what I... Uh, migrate to whenever I think of a a story or a hero's journey or any of that. So anyway, that's food for thought, <laughs> another conversation. Um, but one thing you mentioned as a tool was journaling. 
And mm-hmm. I think that's awesome. Uh, so I'd like to know your in, your impression or your opinion about when you journal, if you want to reflect on that, is there value in treating that like it's a third person? Like, like trying to read your journal entry as if it was somebody else's in order to have a different perspective that allows that, you to do some sort of interpretation. The magic of journaling is that happens automatically. Okay. Um, basically what we've discovered, and I don't want to, I don't want to get too deep in this, but when we write something, we're using a slightly different part of our brain than when we're reading something. And so it's the, the it's like it outputs here, but it inputs there. And there's a little bit of magic in that shift. Um, and so we don't have to pretend that somebody else wrote it. Just the act of reading it will give some clarity and some objectivity. Okay. Puts us in a slightly different spot. Great. <clears throat> the next is an extension of journaling. That is, if you find an area that you you want to change what you write about yourself as a future self. Sure. A visioning exercise <clears throat> saying, what do I want to be like in five years? And then and how do my, I get there? One of my favorite exercises um, is the incomplete sentences exercise. You think of a sentence like, um, next year, I want to be sure to do dot, dot, dot. And you write that sentence down. Next year, I want to be sure to do. And you and you write an answer. Whatever comes to your mind. Don't overthink it. Next line. And you write the whole sentence out. Next year, I want to be sure to do. And you come up with another answer. And you do the next sentence. And next sentence. You write the whole sentence out each time. And add on whatever whatever finishes that sentence out for you. It could be a little bit. It could be a lot. And you just keep going over and over and over and over, all the way down a page. Uh, sometimes I do front and back. You know, the point is that part way through that experience, you've used up all your habitual answers. Next year, I want to be sure to uh, you know pay my taxes on time. Next year, I want to be sure to, and then pretty, but pretty soon you run out of all those things. All those socially approved ones like next year, I want to make sure that wait a minute, that I that I get to go to one of those places I've been putting off for years. I want to make sure that, yeah, okay. I want to make sure I oh, I want to make sure that I apologize to that colleague or you know, I mean you could things will pop up merely because again, you've gone through all the habitual stuff and now you're forced to go out on the frontier of your cognition. And give and and search for answers and and have answers pop up from different parts of the narrative, and that can that can be startling. Uh, and again, it's it's not uh, you know like Jane Austen writing out some sort of long narrative journal. It's just the same sentence over and over again, in the front, with a different sentence end to each one, and it's just doing it enough times where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm answering different things than I ever really thought that I had that had included in my narrative before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to add something to that. If someone chooses to do mm-hmm. that exercise, I'm going to suggest they do some things in advance to reduce their cognitive load, to allow them more freedom 
to get creative and express. And so <laughs> make sure that you can be uninterrupted. Turn your phone off, turn the alerts off, turn, close your computer. Uh, if you're going to type it, then close all the windows on your computer. Just set up, set it up so that you are prepared for an exercise that you can do without interruption to allow you to possibly be more expressful, creative, imaginative, et cetera. And that the discomfort and the little bit of boredom and that little bit of why the heck am I doing this are all part of this exercise. That's not a, that's not a flaw. You're not doing anything wrong. Don't stop just because you feel that. So in the flow research, that's called the struggle phase. And it is a required part of finding flow in a, a creative process that is not physical. So you're just sitting, expressing, you're just writing. And so that struggle through the boredom and the discomfort is really the, the secret sauce that if you mm-hmm. can get past, you'll open up a whole new world of opportunity where time goes by much faster. You don't realize it where you are creating things you didn't know was po- were possible. But, and, and what you're feeling with those feelings uh, that that sort of struggle phase, breakup phase, is the breaking up of your habitual mindset. And, you know, we have that so we don't have to do all that work. And what we're doing is we're forcing our brain to do that work again, mm-hmm. to rebuild those links and ideas. And the, so, yeah, it no, it does. It does take effort and it does feel kind of uncomfortable, but, but it is uncomfortable. We're we have abandoned the comfort of the same old thing to see if we can, through discomfort, find the new next new thing. You also brought up something really important that I want to highlight. Yeah. Okay. If we are, have arranged our lives so we're constantly busy, we're constantly under demand, we're constantly under threat, and that might not be physical threat, that could be an emotional threat or a, a, a fear of failing or whatever that pushes us often even harder into our habitual and into the most essentialist sort of narrative that we've got. Um, If you look at an action movie, it's about a very essential narrative. Pretty soon it just gets down to what is this guy going to do to survive? And the, the, the thing that feels free about that is he doesn't have to worry about anything else. Well, that's great for an action movie. In my world, I have to worry about other things. And so I can't be under that kind of threat and be the action hero. And I just have to do this. And I just have to do that. No, no, no. In fact, I have to find a place of calm. I have to find a place, as you said, where I'm not already preloaded cognitively. Uh, I'm not under threat. So I can be creative and so I can be in touch with my wider narrative, not just that essential survival narrative. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next time to hear the conclusion for our mental slash cognitive self-care section.